The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate appreciate you all. Thanks, uh, Anthony. Appreciate you all being here today. Uh, Let me just say this again. If you're watching me on YouTube... Shut it off, okay? Go over to Rumble, all right? We're trying to migrate from YouTube because they are so woke. They are so restrictive as to what can be on there and taking people down for saying things they don't like. And so we're going over to Rumble where you're allowed to say what you want and they're not interfering with that. So, and I, and I appreciate many of you doing this because we are getting way more views on Rumble than we are on YouTube right now. We have almost 10,000 subscribers on YouTube and only 138 on Rumble, but we got way more people watching us on Rumble. So go to Rumble, subscribe, like us, and follow us there, please. We want to be able to continue to say whatever we want to say without uh, them interfering in that. All right, we're continuing the study this morning in the First Thessalonians, and today we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 of chapter 2. Now, this section of the letter, which runs from 2.13 to 3.13, is a second declaration of Paul's thankfulness for the Thessalonians Christians. And this is kind of unusual for a Pauline letter. But Paul expresses his thanks to God for the community four different times. In 1.2, He is thankful for their faith and how they receive the message as the very Word of God. He says in verse 13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. All right. So he says, We also thank God constantly for you. This sentence begins with the words, And for this reason which is kaidi atuta. And scholars are divided over, okay, what is for this reason? Does it apply to what he just said? Does it apply to what he's going to say? Is he saying, because God has saved you through the gospel and called you into his glorious kingdom, we constantly thank God for you. Or could it mean, because you receive the word, we preach to you, we're constantly giving thanks. Well, according to the context, The Greek construction may look backward or forward, but here the context shows that it looks forward to what follows because the following clause begins with hati, which is because, uh, here it says that, but it's because, which introduces the reason for their thanksgiving. So he says, we thank God constantly. Literally, this is, we are giving thanks to God without ceasing. Constantly is the Greek adverb, adialeptos, and it means without interruption, continually, regularly. I think you can almost understand that if you've been following us from the beginning, these Thessalonians, this is an exceptional church, all right? This is just the kind of church you want to go to, all right? These people are serious about their walk with the Lord. They're suffering persecution, and they're joyful in it. Now, Paul is just constantly thanking God for this church. This word, adialeptos, is also used in Romans 1.9, 1 
1 Thessalonians 5, 1, 2, 13, and 5, 17. And in each passage, it has to do with an aspect of prayer. So he's going to God and just saying, thank you. Thank you for these people. Thank you for their commitment to the Word of God. Thank you for their walk. Thank you for their testimony. And then he says, here's what he's thankful for. That when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. What is Paul saying here? What would be the bottom line of what he's saying here? He is saying, what you heard from us is the very Word of God. That's what he's saying. He's saying that when you receive the Word of God, all right, so they're receiving the Word of God, but what you heard from us, we spoke that, you accepted it. And you didn't accept it as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Paul's saying, what we said to you was the Word of God. And Paul uses two words here for receiving the Word. The word received and the word accepted. The word received here is paralambano, and it means to receive from another. It's especially used in the New Testament of receiving a message or a body of instruction, some doctrine. It's an aorist active participle, which shows the necessity of a personal response. You received it. You, you responded to the message. And it stresses the fact that the message was delivered to them. They heard it with their own ears and their own environment. And the Greek construction here is lay stress on the nature of the message as being God's message, not man's. Now, paralambano is a compound of the term found in John 1.12, where the word is used receive there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. See, their personal response, they received Him. They responded to the message, and they received. Now, the word accepted here is dekomai, which means to receive in the sense of welcoming. The first word, paralambano, means the message was delivered to them. The second, dekomai, means they welcomed it as they would a guest. Now, in this context... He is telling us, I think, that the gospel has to be welcomed. The New Testament described the gospel as both a person and a message. And these synonymous terms describe the need for a human response to the gospel. Fallen mankind must believe. They have to believe the gospel. Now, there's a false teaching out there now called universalism that says you don't need to believe the gospel because everybody's saved, so don't even worry about it. You don't need to believe, you don't need to do anything, you're saved, okay. You're, you're all good, you're okay, don't worry, you don't have to do a thing. That's contrary to the Word of God. If you don't believe the Gospel, you're damned. That's what the Bible says. So don't believe these people who are trying to say, obviously, here's the root of universalism is Arminianism. Because any self-respecting Calvinist knows God doesn't love everybody. Therefore, He doesn't save everybody, Okay. That's, you got to start at the beginning, okay? So Paul says that they received it not as the word of men. That's important because the Bible emphatically is not the word of men. Men were merely the human instruments for transmission of the message, but God himself is said to be the author. God is using these men. He's using their personalities. He's using their experience. He's using their background, and he's speaking through them. You know... While the church, I would have to admit, does have some other responsibilities, nothing 
is more important than the teaching of the Word of God. Nothing. The teaching of the Word is so fundamental to everything else from the standpoint of truth versus error, authority, direction, motivation. It's just, you can't express how important it is, the teaching ministry of the church. Christ is the foundation of the church, but what we believe about Christ comes from the Word of God. In essence, then, knowing the Word is foundational to everything else. So our number one priority is the Word. It's not social reform. It's not social ministries. It's not fundraising. It's not programs. It's not administration. It's not counseling. It's teaching the Word of God. And what I see happening today is that the teaching of Scripture is being bumped, it's being replaced by other interests, by other concerns. And I think the reason for that is a lot of people don't want it. So the church is evolving to give people what they want instead of what they need. And as a result, most people within churchianity are biblically and doctrinally illiterate. They don't know what the Bible says. They just don't have a clue. And this is why I so encourage you to just read the Bible. Read it year after year after year. And the more you read it, the more it's going to start coming together and the more exciting you're going to get about reading it. I know you probably just all those of you are reading finished Leviticus. Not a fun read. I understand that. It was important to Israel. But then you get into Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is just exciting. I love Deuteronomy, okay? <laughs> but, you know, this decline of teaching has been going on for a while. All right, we think it's something new to us, but back in 1924, 1,300 ministers of the Northern Presbyterian Church, USA, they signed and circulated the Auburn Affirmation. Now, the document stated that none of the signers, the 1,300 ministers, believed the Bible to be inerrant. Okay, then what are you doing? Go home, get a job somewhere, and go do something. If you, what, how are you being a minister of the Bible, the gospel, when you don't even believe the Bible's inerrant? So if it's not inerrant, which parts are from God? Are there any parts from God? How do you know what's going on? They agreed with Karl Barth's declaration that the apostles, even in their official apostolic, apostolic letters, have made false statements. See, here's the problem. If you say the Bible contains the Word of God, then you have to sit in judgment on which of it is the Word and which is not. And you become the final authority. But if you recognize the Bible is the Word of God, then it's all God's Word. The Auburn, the Auburn affirmation then added that the virgin birth, the miracles, the atonement, and the resurrection are not essential to Christianity. <laughs> really? Take out the resurrection, the atonement. What, what do you have? What is there to have at all? People, the inerrancy of Scripture is foundational to Christianity. If Paul's assertion that the gospel came from God is false, then we have no means of knowing how often he or the other biblical writers may be deceiving us. Again, we don't know which is good, which is not good. Now, to move up more into our current time, in an Internet article written in 2019 by Andrew Perryman, he asked this question. He says, Would it bother Paul that Jesus still hasn't come again 2,000 years later? Yes, it would bother him. 
Because he said everywhere it would be soon, it would be quickly. Perryman goes on to say, Paul got it wrong. But not by much. Just 2,000 years or so. Paul got it wrong? Do you understand what you're doing when you make statements like that? You've just destroyed the Word of God. It's useless to you. It doesn't deserve your time or your energy. Because it's not from God. He goes on to say, he was wrong. Speaking of Paul, he was wrong. As it turned out, the churches endure a precarious existence with sporadic bouts of persecution for the next two to three hundred years. No, Paul did not get it wrong, people. Because it's the word of God. And that's what he's saying here. What we said to you, you received it not as from us, but as from God. Paul says what he preaches is the Word of God. Make no mistakes about it. He says, as the Word of God. You didn't receive it as the Word of men, but as the Word of God. See, if you truly believe the Bible is God's Word and not the Word of man, then you spend time in it, people. Then you're going to want to apply it to your life. You're going to spend time in it to try to learn what's in there. People, if we really believe that God, the creator of the ends of the earth, gave us a book and said, here, I want you to know me, I want you to understand what I want from you, and then we don't read it, how dumb are we? That's malignant dumb, okay? The answer to life is in that book. And the more we spend time in it, the the greater joy it brings us, because we learn to walk with Him. And there's nothing greater in life than walking with the God who created you. Verse 13 here implies that to know God better, we've got to spend time in the Scriptures. That's the only way you're going to know God. Only way. We get to know Him from His Word. And and the more we get to know Him, we begin to increasingly think His thoughts after Him, and we begin to do what pleases Him, because we know what pleases Him, and we want to walk that way, because we want to honor Him. And if you are going through trials, the Word gives us real-life stories of men and women of faith who endured trials, who endured persecution, so that we begin to imitate their faith, and we begin to learn and be encouraged that this is not something new. All people have gone through things like this. The teaching of the Word of God can only perform their work in you if you're in the Word of God. And people, you know, I'm not talking about the daily, our daily bread, which is our daily oyster cracker, okay? You know, it's a verse, and then you a couple, some person's comments on that. I mean, I know a lot of Christians, they think they're having devotions when they read our daily bread. And as I got to say, it's better than absolutely nothing, but it's not much better, okay? Take the Bible, read the Bible, learn what it says. You don't need another person's comments on it, just get familiar with the book. John Stott comments that he says this, in this book is indeed, if this book is indeed the Word of God, then away with slovenly, slipshod exegesis. We have to make time to penetrate the text until it yields up its treasures. Only when we have ourselves absorbed its message can we confidently share it with others. So true. We got to learn it. We got to be involved in it. We got to know the Word. Now, on the other hand, we have the Catholic Church that says this. Now, this is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 82, and here's what it states. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted 
does not derive her certainty about the revealed truth from the Holy Scriptures alone. But Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. See, they take the tradition of the church and they put it right next to the Word of God. This is crazy, people. This destroys the authority of the Word of God. And listen, it's not just Catholics, because I know a lot of Reformed people who hold to a view that's not very different than this, but what they say is the creeds are up there with the Scripture. No, they're not. They're written by men. They're no different than the traditions of men. We need to hold to the Word of God. This this Word comes from God, not all the other things, the traditions and the creeds. At the heart of verse 13 is the very nature and character of the Bible as the living, abiding Word of God. Without this book as the Word of God, we have no real message and we're left to the ever-changing ideas of men and human reasoning. We don't have anything solid. You know, people tell me, well, I have this belief or that belief. Where do you get your morals from? Well, I just think this is wrong. That word. How do you get it? Where does it come up with? It's just something you made up? Because see, mine come from the Bible. And I know the Bible is the Word of God, so I get my standards from God instead of just making them up. Because apart from God, that's all you have is you make stuff up. And whatever's right for you, then you think it's right. <laughs> okay? And that's not how it works. Now, Sharon, I thought of when you were sharing this morning with the persecuted church, I was thinking of this. He says, which is that work in you believers? All right? This is a present, active, adjectival participle. And it describes the Thessalonians as believers. He goes, which is that work in you? You believers. The word work here is related to our English cognate energy. Paul personified the gospel as continuing to energize believers. The verb work here is almost always used in the New Testament of some form of supernatural activity. That's very important, people. This is, a, this is a supernatural activity. This is God working in His people through the Word of God. It doesn't only bring information and produce feelings. There is power in the Word of God to change lives. Change people. Jonathan Edwards. I'm sure you all are familiar with Jonathan Edwards. What's his most famous sermon? That's right. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. He preached that early in the 18th century. He preached it at Enfield, Connecticut. And Jonathan Edwards read from a manuscript. And he read in a monotone voice. There was no excitement, no enthusiasm. He just take the manuscript and he read it. And as he read this manuscript, there was a rousing effect of repentance in the hearers that were hearing this message. And, and the, the response wasn't due to his oratory ability, because he really didn't have any. It was due to the power of God working through the words that he preached. And people were being changed. People were falling on the ground and calling out for God to, to take them and receive them. And listen, this is the same that was happening with Paul's ministry of the word of Thessalonica. It changed these people, okay? Many of them, idolaters, just, again, Thessalonica was an evil, corrupt place. 
all kinds of different gods, all kinds of different perversions going on there. But these people were transformed, and now they're disciples of the Lord. They're following Him. They're honoring Him. They're being an example to all the churches in Macedonia. Because the power of God's Word changes lives. I hope you know that from firsthand experience. I do. I mean, I do. I, I know it more than I know anything. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're up there in age, maybe you remember the commercials uh, for some kind of cleaner, but it was a white knight, and he came in on a horse with a big lance, and he'd point the lance, and everybody would be all white and clean and shiny. That was almost my experience, okay? When I trusted, I felt like that happened to me. Like, boom, what in the world just happened to me? My thinking changed. I mean, it just was drastic. That's not the way for everybody. I understand that. But I'll tell you what, when the Word of God gets a hold of you, it changes you. Now, before we leave this verse, I've got to ask you a question here. He said, we also thank God. Why is Paul thanking Yahweh for what the Thessalonians did? He said, you received it. You accepted it. And we thank God. Wait a second. How about thanking me? I received it. I accepted it. Why is he doing that? Amen. Thanking God for something assumes that what he's thanking him for is something that God did, not anybody else. Well, that's why he's thanking God. Because men are deaf, dumb, and blind to the things of God. They just are. Okay? They can't get it. Alright? And this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not Accept the things of the Spirit of God. Mark that down, people. They don't get it. They don't accept them. And this, the things of the Spirit would include the Word of God, would it not? They don't accept the Word of God. Now, who's the natural man here? Well, the word from natural comes from the Greek word sukanas. And Jude uses the same word in Jude one nineteen. He says, it is these who cause divisions... Sukanas people, devoid of the Spirit. There's the problem, people. That's what the natural person is. That's what the Sukanas person is. They are devoid of God's Spirit. They don't have God's effectual calling. And people, it is absolutely necessary because apart from it, man has no ability to understand or desire the things of God. Have you ever talked to anybody? You ever shared the gospel with them and it's just like water off a duck's back? Oh, I don't know. A greatest message in the world. And they're like, they don't care. Why? They can't. They're natural. The things of the Spirit don't make any sense to them. Now, two things are true here about the natural man. First of all, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. The word accept here is dekomai. Does that ring a bell at all? It's a word used for receiving guests. It's the same Greek word Paul used in our text we just went over. He said, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And then he says, the natural person, same word, does not accept the things of God. You accepted it, the natural person doesn't. So you're not natural, that's why I'm thanking God, because God did something in your life. They accepted, because God gave them life. Secondly, the natural man is not able to understand them. He is not able. He doesn't have the ability. He can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. The word discerned here is a legal term 
that was used for a preliminary hearing, and it came to mean to scrutinize, to examine, to make judgment. The natural man has no capacity for spiritual things, to evaluate them, because he doesn't have the Spirit of God. The natural man is like a person trying to pick up a radio station without a receiver. If you have a receiver, there's hundreds of radio stations being broadcast in this room. I mean, just you could pick up all kinds of different stuff. But without a receiver, guess what? You're not getting jack, okay? You're not going to hear any of it. It's not going to come through because you need a receiver. And that's the natural man. He doesn't have the equipment. He doesn't have life. He doesn't have what it takes to receive the things of God. So God has to do a work. That's why God gets the thanks and salvation. Because it's all about Him. It's all about Him. (laughs) I saw something on Facebook this week. said, God doesn't need your permission to save you. And I said, thank God. (laughs) Thank God that He did not need my permission to save me. Okay? Paul thanks only God because without God's prior inward work, the readers have no ability to receive the Word of God. They listened to the voice of Paul. They listened to Silas and Timothy, but they heard what was the actual Word of God that these men were preaching. And it changed their lives. He says in verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Yeshua that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Paul is comforting these Christians with the assurance that they're not the first ones to suffer in this way, and they won't be the last one. The Lord faced persecution. The Christians in Judea faced this persecution. Additionally, Paul and his associates, they were being persecuted. The Thessalonian Christians became imitators of those who suffered before them. You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ and Yeshua that are in Judea. Now, Paul had already said that the Thessalonians' suffering was an imitation of the apostles and the Lord. He said that in 1.6. Now he says they were imitators of the experience of the churches in Judea that suffered for their faith. They suffered, now they're suffering. He says, the churches of God in Christ. This is a very interesting little phrase. Notice that churches is plural here. There's one church in the sense that we are all one in Christ. The universal church. But Scripture is very clear, too, that there are local assemblies, and these local assemblies together make up the universal church. So there's different assemblies, different groups of people gathering together as the church visible, meeting together to honor God. Now, the phrase, in Christ Yeshua, is the locative of sphere case, which means in or surrounded by, it's like an atmosphere, it's like a fish in water. A very common Pauline expression, it speaks of believers' union with Christ. And that's the song we sang this morning. A mind at perfect peace with God. Nothing can separate us. He said the love wherewith He loves the Son, that's the same love He loves us with. He loves us as much as He loves His Son. We're as close to God as the Son is close to God. He said nearer you cannot be because in the person of His Son, you're as near as He. That's the un- that's our union with Christ. It puts us in Christ Yeshua. It gives us everything Christ is and has is ours. That is our position. And people, that will never change. 
Nothing can separate us, right? There's nothing to be afraid of. We are secure in Christ. Our lives don't match up to that in practice too often, but our position never changes. Paul says, in Him we live and move and have our being. If you want to read a good example of Paul's idea of being in Christ, look at Ephesians chapter 1, 3-14 through 14, and just read those verses. It talks about what we have in Christ. I love it. I think it's verse 6. He says, we are accepted in the Beloved. That's why I'm accepted, because I'm in Christ. I'm accepted in Him. He is what makes me accepted. Now, exactly how the church in Thessalonica imitated the churches in Judea is explained in the last part of the verse. He says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So he's comparing their suffering with the persecutions of the Christians in Judea. And people, this is a severe persecution because people were dying, right? Stephen died as a martyr. James died as a martyr. The persecution against the Thessalonian church began during the time when Paul and his companions were there, and it just continued right on. They were attacking them. They were putting them to death. They were making them suffer. They were you know, blackballing them from any kind of business or society because of their view, their position with Christ. Now listen to what he's saying here. He's saying this brand new church in Thessalonica, these baby Christians are dealing with persecution the same way as the older mature church was because they're abiding in Christ. They're walking in obedience to the Spirit of God and the Word of God and they're they're doing just as well as this church that was 10 years older than them in the Lord. And I think, believers, a major key to the ability to handle suffering is to understand what the Bible says about suffering. Because today, most Christians suffer and they think, God's punishing me or Satan's doing something to me because, you know, none of that stuff, all right? The Bible teaches that suffering is a tool that God uses like a master craftsman to promote our growth, to build our faith, to transform our lives, to change our sources of trust, to change our values and priorities, or to remove dross, to demonstrate His power, to enhance our testimony of both men and angels. It's just suffering works so much. The Bible teaches us, and I think this is a key to dealing with suffering. Just understand what God says about it. The Bible says suffering is a gift from God. <laughs> That's the craziest thing. But Philippians 1.29, it has been granted. Haridzomai, granted, grace. It is a grace gift to you to believe. We understand that. We have no problem with that. But it's also a grace gift to suffer. Same thing. It has been granted to you. How did Zomai to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but also suffer for His sake? We don't too often view it as a gift, but we should. And a gift is something that you're supposed to give thanks for. I mean, I would think most people, if they get a gift, they'd say thank you. We need to understand, believers, that suffering is the stadium in which we run the race of faith. You suffer the same things, he says. Corey Ten Boone relates in The Hiding Place an incident that taught her to be thankful continually. She says, when she and her sister Betsy were taken to a horrible, inhumane German prison camp named Ravensbrück, 
They had to live in a flea-infested and overcrowded barracks. And the morning they arrived there, they read together 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Be joyful always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances. Afterward, Betsy told Corey to thank God for every aspect of their new lodging. So Corey initially would not thank God for the fleas. She said, I'm not doing it. I'm not thankful for these fleas. But her sister persisted. And Corey finally gave in. And as the ensuing months passed, they were surprised to discover they just had a lot of freedom there to, to have Bible studies and prayer meetings. And the guards were not really bothering them at all. And they didn't understand that. But later they found out that they got all this freedom because the guards didn't want to come there because of the fleas. Guards said, that place is flea infested. We don't even want to go in there. So they had all this freedom for the fleas. (laughs) So thank God for the fleas in your life. Because you just don't know what God is, why is God doing that, okay? But he used those fleas to give them the freedom to study and to pray. Now he says uh, that you you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, most people see this as referring to Gentiles. All right. Um, I'm not so certain about that. The word countryman here is the Greek word sumphuletes. It's the only use here in the New Testament. It's used a couple times in the Septuagint. Strong defines it as a co-tribesman, that is, a native of the same country, countrymen. People who live in the same country you do, right? That's, that's, that's basically it. The term does not define a people racially, but embraces all who live in a locality. The same people who live where you do. So we might understand that it was not only Gentiles, I don't think it was primary Gentiles, but it was Jews who continued to oppress the church. They hated the gospel. They hated Christians. Now notice here, both these words, Judea and Jews, are the same Greek word. Eudios wonder why they translated them different. So they were imitating the suffering that the churches in Judea suffered from the Judeans, and they were suffering from their countrymen just like the Judeans suffered from their countrymen. So they're getting the same thing. So I think their countrymen here are simply the people, the Jews that were living there with them. The Diaspora Jews, they lived there, they were persecuting them. The Gentiles were involved. I think they stirred them up, and we know the Gentiles got involved when Christians would preach against some of the things that were making money for them, and so yeah, then they would persecute them too. Now, here's what's interesting. If you're paying attention, you're reading along, you're reading 13, you're 14, all of a sudden, there seems to be this drastic switch in topic as we move into verse 15. You're like, what just happened there? And and it's almost like as Paul mentions the word eudios, Judeans at the end of 14 it triggers something in him it triggers something in him and he just goes off okay under the spirit of God under inspiration he goes off I mean this passage initially was designed to commend the Thessalonian church and to thank God for what they are doing and all of a sudden he says you die us and then he launches into a tie rod Against the Eudions. It's like, 
You did from the Jews. Jews? Yeah, those who killed Christ. He goes, they killed the Lord and the prophets. They drove us out. They displeased God. They oppose all mankind. They hinder us from speaking to the Jews. On and on. He's just blasting them. Now, what's interesting here is these strong words of Paul, and they are strong people, okay? He says, you die on, and then uh, it's almost like a fury. This has led a lot of scholars to argue against the authenticity of this section. And see, that's how they do with stuff. We don't like this. Let's just say it doesn't belong there. No, no basis for that. No evidence. They just say it's just it's an interpolation in the letter because Paul wouldn't have said that. All right? They think Paul didn't write this. They think it was inserted by some scribe. But let me tell you this. There is absolutely zero, no manuscript evidence to say these verses don't belong here. None. Other accusers of Paul, they say, well, Paul here is being anti-Semitic. Uh, he's a Udion, okay? So what, does he hate himself? That's ridiculous. If he was anti-Semitic, then so was Yeshua, <laughs> who was a Udion, okay? Because he pronounced judgment on the Jewish leaders and on the Jewish nation for their sin of unbelief. Now, the accusation against the Jewish opposition is laid out here in six points, six different indictments. He says, first of all, you killed the Lord Yeshua. And that is my title, Christ Killers. You dions. That's who did it. They killed Christ. Now, Yeshua predicted that they were going to kill him in the parable of the tenants of the vineyard. In Matthew 21, 38 and 39. When the tenant saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. So it's the son, let's kill him. And so the Lord is predicting his own death here. After his death, here's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He said, Men of Israel. He's talking to Udions, okay? Hear these words, Yeshua of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, he's he's saying, hey, this guy was clearly from God. Okay, no doubt about that, just so you get that, all right? As you yourselves know, this Yeshua delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men. In other words, God made it really evident this man was his man and you killed him. Peter accused the Jews of killing the author of life in 3.15. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Over and over again in the Gospels and the Acts, they show the responsibility of the Jewish community in Jerusalem for this deed, including both the religious authorities and the populace in general. Notice that the Jews killed Yeshua according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. He is saying here that God the Father, by His predetermined plan and for His redemptive purposes, killed His own Son using the Eudions. Put another way, without God's plan and permission, Christ would never have died on the cross. This wasn't some failure. This wasn't, oops, they they sent my son and they killed him. 
This was God's plan. Look at Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Yeshua, whom you anointed. Now, the idea of Yeshua being a servant there is taking us back to Isaiah and all the prophecies of the servant of God, all right? The servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles. He's pulling everybody in here, okay? You're responsible, Herod's responsible, Pilate's responsible, the Gentiles are responsible, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predetermined to take place. So Yahweh is sovereign, people, and everything that happens is according to His perfect plan. So the, it was His plan, the Jews carried it out, and He's holding them responsible for that. The second indictment is, you not only killed the Lord, you killed the prophets. In other words, this is, this is nothing new for you. This is your history. They were not only responsible for the death, they had a long history of killing the messengers of God. They didn't like the message, let's just kill them. When Yahweh asked Elijah why he was hiding in a cave, Elijah answered him and he said, I've been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets. The Israelites, this is what they're doing. They're killing your prophets. And I, even I, only am left. You ever felt that way? And they seek my life too. He's just feeling all alone here. I'm the only one, God. No, you're not. The rejection and martyrdom of the prophets are presented as evidence of the rebellion of Israel against the plan of God. In Acts 7, Stephen says to the Jewish leaders, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. They're not pulling punches here, people. You bunch of Christ killers, all right? So indictment number three, you drove us out. From the earliest days after Paul's conversion, he faced almost continual opposition from the Jews. I mean, they would have killed him while he was still in Damascus immediately after his conversion, but he escaped. When he first went to Jerusalem, they again tried to kill him so that he had to flee to Tarshish. While he served the church at Antioch, and wherever he went from there, the Judaizers dogged his steps and tried to undermine his gospel. As we've seen in our study of 1 Thessalonians, the same fierce opposition haunted him. It happened at Thessalonica. It happened at Berea. It happened at Corinth. Wherever he went, they were there. So indictment number four, you displease God. Now the present tense of the verb here stresses this is a constant condition for the Jewish nation. If you're familiar with the history of Jews, you understand that. You constantly displease God. All right? The sad thing is that when they thought they were actually pleasing God and persecuting and killing Christians, what they were doing was opposing God. Yeshua said to his disciples, They will put you out out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. See, the Jews believed they were his servants. They were defending the faith. These were false teachers. And Paul knew these feelings well because Paul had been there. He was one of them. He was out killing Christians. And tragically ironic, they were the false teachers who were displeasing God. Indictment number five, you oppose all mankind. This is interesting, people, because the hostility of the Jews against the rest of humanity 
was a characterization that frequently appeared in ancient authors. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says, They were loyal to one another, but toward every other people they feel only hate and enmity. It's interesting that God had called them to be a light to the Gentiles. God had called the nation Israel to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, and they hated him. They just hated him. Philostratus, who was called the Athenian, he was a Greek sophist of the Roman imperial period, he says this, For the Jews have long been in revolt, not only against the Romans, but also against humanity, in a race that has made its own life apart and irreconcilable, that cannot share with the rest of mankind in the pleasures of the table, nor join in the libations or prayer or sacrifices, they are separated from ourselves by a greater gulf than divides us from Susa or Bactra or the more distant Indies. And Diodorus Siculus, who was an ancient Greek historian, he observed this. He says, Jews alone of all nations avoid dealing with any other people and looked upon all men as their enemies. He goes on to say, the Jews have made their hatred of mankind into a tradition. They certainly had. They hated, you know, (laughs) they hated people that weren't Jews. Indictment number six, he says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Now, the Gentiles, that's everybody besides the Jews. And they, because they oppose mankind, they're like, we're going to hinder you from taking the gospel. And the fierce opposition of the Jews was due to the fact that the Christians were offering salvation to the Gentiles. And they didn't really have that much of a problem with that because they always allowed Gentiles to come in, but they had to come in through the door of Judaism. They had to be circumcised. They had to follow the Jewish laws. They had to do all this. Well, here's what's happening now. They're bypassing Judaism and just coming right to God. And that's what made them so mad. No, you've got to come through us. Okay? Well, they weren't demanding that they become Jews first. Yahweh announced through His prophets His intention to extend His salvation to the Gentiles back in Isaiah, Isaiah 49.6. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So he talks about, first of all, the servant is raising up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Those are the Udions. And now he says, I want to make you a light for the Goy. And the Goy here is the Gentiles, the nations. See, God's plan was always to bring the Gentiles back to Himself. And He was doing this through the apostolic mission. And this became one of the most significant and problematic issues in the early church. And the Jews would listen to Him until they said, God's reaching out to the Gentiles. Then they would go crazy and say, no more, we can't have this stuff. He says to them, so as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. Now, this exact Greek phrase is found in the Septuagint version of Genesis 15, 16. And the fourth generation shall return here, for not yet have been filled up the sins of the Amorites unto the present. Now, the statement echoes a theme that appears over and over in biblical and extra-biblical literature, namely, that the sins of a people 
come up to their complete measure before divine judgment is poured out upon them. In other words, they, their sins get folded up, then God judges. And judgment, he's saying, will come upon Israel as upon other nations when they fill up the measure of their sins. Now, this perspective, I think, is based on the teaching of Yeshua in Matthew 23, who says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. There again, this idea of them being murderers. He says, Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape the sentence of Gehenna? Therefore, I send you the prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Now, by the time of Christ, by the time of Paul, they, they had reached the apex of their apostasy. It wasn't the beginning of the rebellion. It was, in real sense, the end of it. And the reason it was the end of the, the final of their apostasy, because their Messiah, who had been predicted all through the Tanakh, had showed up. He was there. And they said, nope, don't want him. It's not what we want. We need a physical deliverer to set us free from Roman oppression. Take your spiritual salvation somewhere else. We don't want this. So this is literally the filling up the final step in their sin. They rejected the Christ. They rebelled against God's Word. They rebelled against God's salvation in the wilderness. I mean, God delivers them. They get out in the wilderness, and what do they do? Moses, why would you bring us out? Moses, why are you not paying attention? I mean, look at all the miracles that brought them out there. As soon as they left Egypt, they're griping. They make an idol. This is the God that brought us out. And because of that, thousands, 3,000 of them died. You'd think they'd have taken a clue, but they were slow to learn. And because of that, the whole generation never entered the promised land. Well, no sooner were they in the promised land than they get involved in idolatry. I mean, God gave them promises. God gave them blessings. In Deuteronomy 28, God says, I set before you blessings and cursings. 15 verses of blessings. And then he shifts in a whole ton of verses of cursings. And read the cursings. This is what's going to happen. You obey me, this, you get all this good stuff. You disobey me, all this stuff. Well, they just, they tragically chose the curses. They chose the curses. They gave themselves to the worship of Baal. They're worshiping other gods. Their whole story is one long tragedy as they continued to turn, no matter what God did. They kept turning away, and they'd suffer, and then they'd call, God, help us, and God would help, and then they'd turn away again, and just back and forth, back and forth. Ultimately, they end up as captive to the pagans, and even after they came back to the land, they still didn't get it, and went right back in their sin. And then by the time of Christ, they were apostate hypocrites. They reached the apex of it because Christ showed up, according to the Scriptures, Boy, you read the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew says over and over, this happened according to the Scriptures. This happened according to the Scriptures. Why? Because you should know the Scriptures. And then you'll know this is what was supposed to happen. But they didn't get it. And then he says, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, the commentators, the scholars, they have many opinions on what this wrath is. Okay? A lot of different opinions. Some say it refers to Israel's present hardening. The wrath was God hardened their hearts, all right? 
Some say it's an eschatological wrath, and, and I agree with that, but by eschatological they mean the end of the world. This is wrath that's going to come at the end of the world. A number of authors have noted that during AD 49, and we're about in AD 50 right here, okay, when the writing is. So AD 49, the Jewish people suffered greatly, including their expulsion from Rome by Claudius' decree, and there was a massacre of thousands of Jews in the temple during the Passover of 1949, not 1949, 49, all right? I believe that the wrath here is referring to which is the judgment that happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, you know, most people in churchianity don't know anything happened in A.D. 70. They don't know Jerusalem was destroyed. That doesn't play into anybody's theology for some reason. But I want you to notice here that the translators say here that the wrath has come. That's referring to something that's past. So if it was 49, that would make sense because that's past. This is the aorist tense here, and I believe it affirms something that's not past, something that is so inevitable, so certain that it can be spoken of as if it's already come to pass. Now, the verb here is phano, and it can be used like some past tense verbs in the Old Covenant. They're called prophetic perfects. Such verbs in the past would be used in a prophetic section to refer to future events, events that were so certain to happen that the prophet would underscore this certainty by referring to them in the past tense, as if they'd already happened. So this future event, which I believe is eighty seven, it's 20 years off, but it's described here in the prophetic aorist tense to dis- talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. Daniel B. Wallace says this, the aorist indicative can be used to describe an event that is not yet past as though it were already completed. This usage is not at all common, though several exegetically significant texts involve possible proleptic errors. S. Lewis Johnson says, They were described in the past tense because it was so certain they would come to pass, and so the use of the tense of completed action, a perfect tense, to describe events of the future, clearly from the context they were future, was called in Hebrew grammar as the prophetic perfect. Now that is what we have here. And I agree with him. I think that's what he's saying here. The wrath has come upon them. Now it hasn't, but is a certain wrath. Nothing's changing this. It is coming. And you know why nothing's changing this? Because the Lord talked about this wrath 20 years prior to this. He told them of the coming wrath. He told them this temple would be destroyed. He told them not one stone would be left upon another. So this wrath is coming. All right? The Lord said it. He's not wrong. Things aren't changing. And wrath, it refers to the judgment that's meted out against the nation Israel for her constant stiff-necked condition as prophesied in Deuteronomy. And if you look at Deuteronomy 28 and verse 15 to 68 as the curses, you'll see a lot of this stuff actually transpired in AD 70. If you read Josephus and compare Josephus to Deuteronomy, you'll be like, wow, this is amazing. The wrath is the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the, when the Roman armies just marched in on Jerusalem and burned it to the ground and slaughtered Jews and carried the rest off captive. This is the same wrath 
that Paul mentioned in 1.10. He says, to wait for his son from heaven, he's talking about the second coming, who he raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the same wrath that he's talking about. Yeshua predicted this wrath would come upon Jerusalem at the second coming because they rejected him. Now, who is the us here? Well, it's Paul and the Thessalonians. So if they are going to be delivered from the wrath, that means the second coming must have been happening when they were still around so they could be delivered from it. Paul mentions this wrath again in 5.9. He says, but God has not destined us for wrath. Again, us is Paul and the Thessalonians. This wrath was coming in their lifetime. Notice what Paul says in the second letter. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. All right, we know that, we've talked about this many times, these Thessalonians were dealing with suffering. They're going through affliction. So here's what he says. He says, God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. Okay, now watch. And grant relief to you who are afflicted. So God's going to get the people who are afflicting you, and you're going to be relieved from that affliction. Okay, good. When does this happen? When does it happen? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. Now, most people say, well, that hasn't happened yet. Well, what does that say about these Thessalonians? What did God, he's told them it was going to happen and never happen? That's really sad. God, that, again, goes against inspiration. So God must have lied. God must have been mistaken or something. They're going to get relief at the second coming. Now, here's what's interesting. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, which I've recommended to you several times, it is just an excellent background study and understanding the Scriptures. It says this. It says that the theme of this letter, Thessalonians, is this. Unable to physically be with the new believers, Paul encourages their faith and strengthens their hope in view of Christ's eminent return. This is a major publication saying, hey, it's his, his return is eminent. Not to us, to them. I thought, that's, that's pretty good. I'm, they're not preterists that I know, but man, they're knocking at the door, okay? This was written in the first century to suffering believers, promising them relief at the second coming. If that second coming still future, how would it give relief to the believers in Thessalonica? They're gone. They're toast. They're, nothing matters anymore to them. Their relief was to come when Christ returned. Now, Again, using the heiress indicative, Paul says, but wrath has come upon them at last. In other words, man, he, he goes, he launches into this thing. You Christ killers, wrath is coming at last. About time, you're going to get what's coming to you. Why? Because you killed the Lord Jesus. You killed the prophets. You drove us out everywhere we went. You displeased God. You oppose all mankind. You hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles. And because of this wrath, has come upon you at last. And I believe this is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This is what Yeshua called the great tribulation. He says, for then there will be great tribulation. Now watch what he says. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. This is the greatest, great, great tribulation there ever will be. Now, there's been a lot of wars and there's been a lot of judgments. But AD 70 wasn't just the destroying of a nation. It was putting an end to the old covenant. 
It was a change of covenants. The judgment of the great tribulation was complete, listen, and it was irreversible for Israel. There is no more old covenant. There is no more racial Israelite. None. There is no more national Israel. Not now. Not ever. This great tribulation did away with Israel as a people. They're done. As a nation. As a physical people of God. Yahweh's wrath in AD 70 destroyed the Christ killers. And they're done. God is done with them. Now so many people today, oh God's got a future plan for the, for the Israelites. No, He does not. Wrath came upon them at last. The church today is the people of God. It's not about who you are racially. It's about the faith that you have in your heart. Okay? And you are a child of Abraham if you believe in the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And next week we're going to come back and we're going to discuss this wrath that did come upon them and see what exactly it was that they went through. And you can see it was... A time that there wasn't anything like this before. There's not going to be anything after it. This is a very significant event. It's not something that's ever going to be repeated. It is over. It is done. We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Father, I pray that at times when we're reading your word, we would tremble, Lord, as we realize who you are and your holiness and your awesomeness. And we'd fear of being like the Israelites who just could not get it right, Lord. Help us, Father, to honor you by the way we live. Help us to hold the word of God precious, Lord, that the things we read, the things we see, we want to emulate. We want to be image bearers of you in every direction. That people would see you in us. That we would be good testimonies, Lord, of our God. Thank you, Father, for the awesome privilege we have as your children. Amen.